All right, so we're going to be in Matthew 18, rounding out the chapter. So um, if you missed last week's sermon, that's kind of a, a, a pairing with this one, okay? The, these two sections of Scripture go together. Last week was on gossip and slander, and it's where I spent a lot of time telling you what not to do, okay? So the scenario is you have a broken relationship. It, it doesn't matter how broken, it's just broken, okay? The prescription is the same. And Jesus gives some principles to follow in, in putting that relationship back together, and I would call that reconciliation, okay? not just agreeing to disagree in parting ways. That's not reconciliation. That's just agreeing to disagree. That's a kind of human, fake version of reconciliation. Okay, this is a different thing Jesus is calling for. Okay, and he gives us a, and that prescription is basically keep the circle of inclusions as small as possible. As in the best case scenario is no one even knows you were ever mad at each other. That's best case. Okay. The, but we, what we tend to do is instead of doing that, we gossip or we slander against the person we're upset with. And it feels good for us. It's a weird kind of demonic comfort for us, but it doesn't reconcile. It actually makes it worse, right? And so we talked about that last week. And so this morning, we're looking at Peter has a question in response to Jesus' teaching that we covered last week, okay? And that's where this comes from this morning, Okay? So we're going to talk about that, and we're going to get, get into the idea of forgiveness and reconciliation and what that is and how to do it, and hopefully I'll leave you with some practical things at the end, okay? All right, so Matthew 18, we'll just start with, the first, uh, the, with verse 21 and 22. It says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Okay, so Peter's, this, Peter's question is, isn't, he's not asking this in a vacuum. Okay, this was a, a often discussed, debated question amongst rabbis at the time, where they would say, how many times do you have to forgive somebody before you can just condemn them and stop forgiving them? And the answer, what the kind of the consensus at the time seems to be about three, okay? So Peter's being generous. Peter's not being dumb, okay? He's kind of saying, well, three, he's kind of getting the idea. He's learned enough about Jesus at this point to kind of go, well, three seems like insufficient. Is it seven? So he's not, he's not being um, unforgiving or uncharitable when he asks, is it seven times, okay? That's my point. Don't be too hard on Peter, okay? It's a good question, in my opinion. How many times do I forgive somebody? And I bet you've had this question in your life. When someone's sort of a repeat offender, if you haven't ever had this, you are the repeat offender, okay? If you've never wondered how many times do I have to forgive someone, someone else is thinking that about you, all right? But this, right, and this, it's, it's a good question. How many times do I have to forgive somebody? Jesus' answer is, for us English speakers is maybe confusing. Why such a specific number? The 77 times expression is literally 70 multiples of seven in the Greek, but weirdly enough, this is kind of an idiomatic saying of the time. Okay, it, it's not about the number. It's like saying a gajillion or a whole bunch, 
or more, or, or like, it's like saying the number doesn't matter, Peter, just a bunch of times beyond what matters. It's a big number. Okay? That's, that's what that expression means. It's also, interestingly enough, probably comes from, that expression probably comes from Genesis 4, 24, and I was tempted to go there, but it would take too long. All right? Lamech 77-fold revenge here turned into a 77-fold forgiveness. So it's an interest. If you want to do a Bible study on forgiveness, go back to Lamech in Genesis 4:24. Learn about that story. Make note of his 77-fold revenge against his enemies, and then compare that to what Jesus says here. It's kind of cool, all right? But that's another sermon on forgiveness, and I'm going on vacation, all right? So. Go check it out. All right, either way, it's not about the exact number. That's the point, okay? Jesus is saying a whole bunch of times, Peter, not just seven, not just three, beyond, don't even count. Don't keep track, don't count. He's not saying you should count your forgives and limit it to 77, or if you want to say it's 70 times seven, 490, all right? It simply means an unlimited, exaggerated, exaggerated amount. So Jesus' response was radical and countercultural. That's what I want you to see. He's not going along with what the world says around him. This is, what, this is how charitable and forgiving you should be to other people. He's saying the standard of the kingdom is, the st- is defined not by how much you're willing to forgive or your sense of justice or injustice. The standard of forgiveness is defined by God himself. And that's what comes next. Because Jesus is going to tell a parable to explain this. Let's read Matthew 18, 23 to 27. So Jesus is going to tell a story, and the story is going to have a point. Okay? So he says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay... His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. So let's pause here. There's some, some translation I need to do for you. All right. So in this parable, the master is God the father. Okay. So just when you see the, father, the master, that's God the father. The master has a servant that owes a very large debt. Okay, so if you adjust for inflation, 10,000 talents would be something around a billion dollars. It's a silly amount, okay? It's silly. It's, it's over the top. It's, it's more money than Caesar had in his treasury, okay? To put it in some kind of perspective for you. It would be like a, 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 a guy who works uh, bagging groceries at the grocery store telling someone he will pay back his $1 billion debt if he just gives you more time. It's crazy. It's almost humorous, okay? The amount of money that Jesus comes up with that this guy owes the king. He could never, ever, 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 ever pay it back, not in a million years. Not in a hundred lifetimes could he pay this money back. He's a servant. He makes almost nothing. Okay, so the master says, I'm going to throw you in prison along with your family. And this was like the, the normal kind of just thing that their law provided for when you owed a debt you couldn't pay. 
you would work it off as a servant in that person's household and your family and your kids would until the debt was paid off, okay? This was how debts were paid, okay? This was a just punishment, a just reward for his debt, okay? This is what the law said should happen. And this is what the master, he's not being mean. He's doing exactly what the law says he should do in this case, all right? Then the servant begs, the master has mercy, and he not only releases the servant and says, you don't, okay, I won't put you in prison, we'll work something out. He does more than that. He says, I will completely forgive your debt totally. The one billion dollars you no longer have to owe. It's mercy that's beyond reason. Look at what happens next. Jesus' story goes on, verse 28 to 30. He says, but when that servant went out, okay, this is the, now the forgiven servant, leaves the, the, the master's presence. He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, saying the exact same words he just said to the master. Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. How does that make you feel? A hundred denarii is an interesting amount because this would be about a hundred days' wages for both of them. It's not a small debt. It's not, a, it's not like a couple bucks. It's a significant debt, but it's payable. It's within reach. It's about what probably most of us owe on our credit card, right? It's not insignificant, but if you compare this significant debt to the $1 billion debt, it's silly, right? It's egregious. It's horror. It's not even in the same ballpark. So the guy who's forgiven a billion-dollar debt that he will never be able to pay in a hundred lifetimes turns around and refuses to forgive the person who owes him a debt that is tiny by comparison. He even grabs him by the throat and starts choking him. This would have been so offensive to those who heard this story, just like it is to you, if you can imagine it. To make the point really clear, Jesus in the story has both servants use the same words in their plea for mercy to make sure we get the comparison, right? So look at what happens in verse 31 to 35. It says, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers, or the torturers, until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And there in verse 35, the story, Jesus, the, the, the story breaks the fourth wall and all of a sudden the people listening to the story, which is us, are in the crosshairs. So the master finds out what the unforgiving servant has done and punishes him severely and nobody would say he was being unjust in that story. Yet when it's us, 
who has to do the forgiving, we look at God and say, it's not fair that I have to forgive him. It's not fair. He did me wrong. She did me wrong. I shouldn't have to do the forgiving. They should come groveling to me. It's just because your perspective is just from your eyes. You're not seeing it from God's eyes because this story, the point of view, the perspective of the story is from the master's perspective. What he sees is he forgives a billion-dollar debt that cannot be paid when the servant he forgave won't forgive a small debt. And the one that gets punished is not the debtor, it's the one who wouldn't forgive the debt. This is how the kingdom works, and this is the foundation of our whole concept of forgiveness. Okay? What does this teach us? It gives us, one, a simple definition of forgiveness. Forgiveness is releasing someone from a debt owed to us. We just prayed it in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus stuck it in his model prayer. He slipped it right in there, and we pray it, and we don't know what we're saying half the time. You forgive a debt owed to you. They do not have to pay what's owed to us. In this case, the debt is a justice deficit created by sin. Someone sins against you, they do you wrong. Forgiveness releases them from that debt to you, okay? Another way to look at it is when you forgive someone, you are willfully standing in active agreement with Romans 12, 19, which says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is, the desire for vengeance is not in and of itself wrong. Vengeance is like, hey, there was an injustice and it should be paid back. Forgiveness says, it's not mine. I don't get to get the vengeance. I don't get to get that. It's not mine. It's God's. It's not mine. And so forgiveness is saying, I release you from that debt to me. This is nothing to lessen the grievousness of the sin committed against us. This is what most people get wrong, in my experience, with the idea, if I say you should forgive them, they think, well, what he did was wrong. You misunderstand forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't diminish how wicked or evil or bad or wrong that thing was. It's not, the same, it's not denial. It's not making excuses. It's not saying, well, well, he or she didn't mean it. They didn't know what they were doing. They weren't raised the way I was raised. They, they didn't intend to hurt me that way. They didn't, my dad didn't mean to abandon me when I was a little kid. He didn't know because he had bad... All that stuff is just a bunch of denial. It was wrong. It was evil. It was wicked. And he messed up. He blew it. That is not at war against the idea of forgiveness. In fact, I would say in order for you to really forgive somebody, you've got to face what they actually did. Like you're, you're trying to make your forgiveness easier to give out when you lessen what the person did against you. Instead, you let it be as big as it is. Just let it be as awful as it was, as gross and evil and wicked as the biggest failure you can imagine, and you let it be as big as it needs to be, and then you bring the cross to it, and you say, because the cross is bigger than any of those things, therefore I can forgive. Why? Because I have been forgiven more than that. Not because I feel like forgiving. Not because it's in my power or in my ability to not be hurt by it anymore. It's simply on the grounds 
of God forgave me and I will not withhold forgiveness from another because anything someone else does to me is nothing in comparison to what I have done against an infinitely holy God. It is nothing as horrible as it may have been. You see? So your understanding of the gospel connects to your ability to forgive other people. If you think you're just not that bad, I'm just not that bad. I mean, I was, I've had a couple of moments where I had maybe a bad attitude. and You know, it's like, it's like we, we talk about our sin the way we do job interviews when they ask you, what's your biggest weakness? Anyone ever had that interview question? It's so dumb. Like, I, why do we ask? But, and you always say something like, well, I just really work too hard. I'm too dedicated to my job. Some something like all right, some some weakness that's really to an employer a strength, right? And we, because that's what if we were really honest in job interviews? Well, I'm really horribly selfish. I have a bad temper. I only think of myself. You know, what if we were really honest? We wouldn't get the job. So we think of ourselves that way, right? So when someone else does us wrong, we think of ourselves as this pure, pure-hearted victim that has nothing to forgive. But when we recognize that God, what God has done for us, the mercy he's had on us, the grace he's poured out on us, the way he's blessed you and called you to be a part of his family, that you are beyond blessed and you earned none of it, then when someone else sins against you, no matter how, how horrible it is, you're able to go, okay, my perspective is from heaven. And I'm going to forgive based on that. So it's really common for people to think that denial and forgiveness are the same thing, and they really are not. I want to make sure you hear that, because some of y'all have been really done wrong, really hurt, really abandoned, really abused, gossiped about, slandered about. All the things we talked about last week have been done to you. And you resist forgiveness because you feel like it means you're saying what they did to you was not so bad. And that makes you angry. And that's legitimate. God made us to love justice. It's human nature to withhold forgiveness until the person has paid the debt to some degree with their groveling or pain or regret or something. If you're married, say holla. Don't say holla. Say amen. We want to only offer forgiveness to someone if they prove that they now deserve it. That's why we do the silent treatment. I'm the worst at that. Heather was teaching Sunday school. If she was here, she would go, mm-hmm. <laughs> why, do I, why do I do the silent treatment? Why do I do that? Why is that my sinful response? It's because I'm trying to make her pay. I'm withholding relationship from her to make her suffer until she is groveled appropriately and for, and for the appropriate amount of time that I silently deem in my own mind is the right amount of time. I don't tell her, well, if you grovel for an hour, then I'll forgive you. I'm not that honest because I'm silent, right? So I have this thing in my heart that says, I'm not going to forgive you until you earn it, until you prove yourself worthy of it. terrible <laughs> but in Jesus' parable notice that no one deserves it 
No, everybody owes a debt. There's nobody who's like, I owe you 25 cents, sorry. It's all real debts they're owed. No one deserves it. They all owe a debt. They cannot be denied. There is no defense. The numbers don't lie. All they can do is ask for mercy. Neither servant can say, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to pay you. Here's your money. It's too big. All they can do is say, please, please have mercy on me. So we have been forgiven our sins against the holy God. He has graciously forgiven our infinitely great sin debt and any sin debt owed to us is tiny in comparison to the debt we owe to the Father. See, if the basis of forgiveness is on them earning it or coming back to us or somehow, and I'm going to talk about reconciliation in a second, but even changing their behavior, how many times do we need to forgive? Don't even count. You just keep forgiving. Then Jesus says at the end of his parable, he says that a heart that is persistently unwilling to forgive is strong evidence that it is a heart that has not been forgiven by God. Those are scary words in verse 35. A persistent unwillingness to forgive is a strong sign that you may not be forgiven. They are linked together. He says it in the prayer. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven those who owe us, right? Who are in debt against us. In other words, Christians forgive. We forgive. It's what we do. Not forgiving is strong evidence that such a person is not a Christian. It's serious. Right? So let's talk about forgiveness and reconciliation because I know you got questions about this. Let's remember the greater context here. All right, going back to what we covered last week, the goal is to mend a broken relationship. Okay? That's kind of the end game that Jesus is after. Some prefer to include the concept of reconciliation in the word forgiveness, but for our purposes, I'm going to separate them out. Okay? So reconciliation is what happens when two estranged people repent to each other and forgive each other so completely that they are able to move forward in a unified and trusting relationship. It is beyond just parting ways and not being mad at each other, okay? It's coming back together in actual unity of relationship. And I would submit to you, because Jesus, God, commands a blessing over those who are in unity, your relationship should be actually stronger. Because when you come together and are reconciled, God sees that and he blesses that relationship and brings fruitfulness and power and strength where there wasn't before. And so God can actually turn this broken thing into something that's actually better than it was before. That's Christian relationship, okay? So reconciliation can only happen if full repentance is offered, including stopping the sin itself. That's part of repentance. If I walk up to, I won't say Alan because I pick on him all the time. If I walk up to Lou and I slap him in the face and then I'm like, what? What up, Lou? And Lou's like, you know what? Jesus said, turn the other cheek. Brother, I forgive you. You don't have to apologize. Nothing. You don't owe me anything. I forgive you. 
I say, I'm really sorry for slapping you in the face. He's like, man, thanks for saying that. And then I go, whack, and I slap him again. And I'm like, sorry, Lou, my bad. Slapped you in the face again. He's like, I forgive you. At some point, if I keep doing that, Lou's not going to come around me anymore. When Lou sees me across the room, he's like, hey, Ben, over there. He's not going to let me keep slapping him. That has nothing to do with his forgiveness. He needs to forgive me for slapping him, but that doesn't mean he has to walk up to me and go, keep hitting me. I have not repented. There is no reconciliation. Even though I said I'm sorry, the words I'm sorry do not equal repentance. If you have small children and you make them say they're they're sorry to each other, that's a good practice. But is is it repentance? No, sorry. Say it like you mean it. Sorry. Say it like you mean it, but I don't mean it. Say it like you mean it. Hug, hug it out. And they're just like, wrap your arms around each other. You know, and you just, it's ridiculous, right? That's not reconciliation. It's not repentance. So I would separate, at least I think it's helpful to separate the idea of forgiveness and reconciliation. One way to think about it is to say forgiveness takes one, just you. Reconciliation takes two. And what I can tell you from my vantage point of seeing many, 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 many people broken and mad at each other and then repent and reconcile, it never gets better until both people say, I'm sorry, and they mean it. And then forgiveness is offered. You cannot reconcile if only one is repenting and the other one's doing all the forgiving. And you cannot reconcile if, if neither is willing to repent or only one is willing to forgive and the other is not. I don't think I did anything wrong to you. Well, then you're at an impasse. But I'm telling you, I have seen it hundreds of times in some of the most messed up relationships I've ever seen. When somebody says, just owns it, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry I said that. And I'm really sorry I then didn't talk to you for two days. I'm really sorry. That's a jerk thing to do. My bad. And the person says, you know what? It was. It hurt me. It broke my heart. It offended me. It made me angry. But I forgive you. You know what happens in that moment? The Holy Spirit rushes in and ties their hearts back together in a way that's stronger and more secure and more unified than it was before. And it is absolutely miraculous. I think it's the most miraculous thing that happens. And it's so invisible. (laughs) I always wish I could, like, tell people, you won't believe what just happened. You and you (laughs) were hating each other for, like, six months, and now you're friends. I can't do that. But it's absolutely miraculous what happens. Trust is a part of this reconciliation, right? So I can release you from your debt to me and still refuse to lend you any more money in the future to put it back in the context of the parable, okay? So I can say, I I forgive your debt. You don't have to pay it back to me, but you know what? I'm not going to give you, and then if you say, hey, can I borrow 50 bucks? I'm going to say, no, you can't borrow 50 bucks. It's going to take us a while to get to the point where I'll lend you money again. 
So this is, this is not like a, you, you have one conversation sometimes, depending on how bad the betrayal is. It's not like you just talk one time and say, I repent and I forgive you, and everything's like, woohoo, roses. It might take some time. But the point of actual change is in that moment when you actually humbly repent and humbly forgive each other. This is the key to a long marriage. This is the key to long friendships. This is the key to staying in any church for a long time. Any, any kind of whatever strata of relationships, relationships you have with your life, in your life, your relationship with your parents, your relationship with your children, your relationship with the church, your relationship with your wife, your relationship with every single person, if you cannot do this, you're going to have a trail of broken relationships where people might have just said, we'll just part ways. And it will be, your story will be brokenness and loneliness behind you because you can't keep a friend and you can't stay married and you can't stay in a church because you can't repent and you can't forgive. You cannot bypass this in your life. Nobody gets out without having to repent and forgive and learn how to reconcile. It also means that you have to be, when someone won't repent to you, you have to be able to kind of say, okay, I'm not going to keep beating on your door. I'm just going to forgive you. I'm going to do my part before God. I'm going to forgive you, and then that's, that's good, right? I had the thought this morning, I've seen this over time, is that people think they have a much longer time to patch things up with people than they actually have. You start getting into your 40s, mid-40s, you start to see what happens to people when they get old. People die unexpectedly. People get sick. People lose their ability to remember things. They lose their mental faculties. Things happen to people. And if you go through life thinking, well, one day I'm going to call them up. One day I'm going to reach out. One day, I'm going to do, then the day comes when you can't anymore, and reconciliation, reconciliation is no longer possible because it takes two people. You cannot reconcile with a dead person. You can forgive them, okay? You can forgive them. But if you've got dead loved ones that did you wrong, you can still forgive them. But that experience of seeing the Holy Spirit come in and bind you back together and restore something that was long broken, you can't get anymore. So I just want to encourage you, if you've got people kind of dangling out there like loose ends in your life, people you're mad at, people you're, that, that, that you just like, I don't ever want to see them again, just think about it. Think about it. All right, so I want to give you some wisdom for reconciliation, just, this is just kind of randomly collected things that I thought about, and then we'll close out. Forgiveness is clearly about sin, not innocent mistakes or differences of opinion. So an important clarifying question to ask yourself and the person you're offended with is, did I sin against you or did you sin against me? Not did you do something I didn't like, not am I offended with you or are you offended with me, but did I sin against you? That brings it, because you can't forgive a mistake. It's great, it's important for little kids too, right? When it's spilled milk, well, they just spilled the milk. You don't, I'm not going to have to, I don't have to, you didn't sin against me when you spilled the milk or when you, 
or when you had that a political opinion I didn't like or whatever it is. That's not sin. It's just a difference of opinion. You don't need to have a sit down and reconcile over that. Don't be that kind of person who's always offended by everything and has no sense of proportion. Okay? Make it about sin, and that is the clarifying question. If you're mad at me, I'm going to say, how did I sin against you? And when we answer that question, then we can get somewhere, okay? Consider just letting it go. That's kind of the follow-up to that, which is, if is this something that you can just let go? Now, if you can't let it go and it's gnawing at you, then deal with it. But you also can't go through life being easily offended and fragile. And every time somebody bumps up against you, you've got to have a meeting, okay? So ask that question first. Can I or should I just get over it? Okay? And if you find that you can't get over it, then deal with it. Okay? You may need some help with this. So find someone that you can trust to be honest with you and get counsel from them on it. But be, be careful. Please do not use this as an excuse for gossip. I just need your advice. And then you spend 20 minutes ranting about somebody that hurt you. Remember the circles? <laughs> Remember the Jesus circles? <laughs> keep the circle small, right? Keep things hypothetical. If you need advice, keep it hypothetical and not the kind of hypothetical that, that, that gossips are really good at. It's, and you give, where you give them enough information that they know who it is you're talking about without saying the name, Okay. Almost didn't even say that, but I feel like sometimes if, you're, if you recognize that you're easily offended and kind of have a fragile ego, if I could put it that way, you might need some discipleship in that area, and maybe there's some people that could help you with that, all right? Your perception is usually not the full reality. This is number three, especially when it comes to the heart motives of other people. So go in a humble and quiet attitude. Ask questions and actively listen before you make a strong statements about your perception of the events that hurt you. Isn't it funny how when somebody does something that hurts your feelings, you assume a, a certain heart motivation about them that is not charitable. We assume the worst when we're hurt. And if you go, into, if you go to talk to somebody with that attitude, you're going to make it worse. But if you go in going humbly, like, you know what, I probably don't understand what they meant or what they did or why they did what they did. And you just say, I'm going to be humble and I'm going to ask questions. And then I'm going to be honest. I don't have numbers, so I don't know what number this is. If someone shares gossip with you, we, I opened that can of worms last week then you need to bring the person back to what Jesus says in Matthew 18 as their God. I mentioned last week, as soon as someone says something to you, you are now, whether they want you to be or not, you are now an active participant in that reconciliation. You don't get to step out now that you know what you know. You're now a part of it. Maybe you didn't want to be. Maybe you're just on your way to lunch. Maybe you're just trying to get out, slip out of the building before church, but now you're in it. You're part of it. And your job is to say, what does Matthew 18 tell us to do, brother or sister? Have you talked to them yet? No? Okay. That's, that's what you do first. And then if you need help, I'll go with you. But this is what we do. This is how we get through this. 
And lastly, never lie to make it go away. This goes back to confusing forgiveness and reconciliation. Don't minimize or pretend to forgive or pretend to repent. Truth first. There is a way to respond to somebody who repents to you that does not minimize what they did, but still receives it. Don't lie. Oh, it's no big deal, no big deal. It's fine, it's fine, it's fine. We don't need to talk about it. No, 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 no. It's fine, it's fine. Stop being so Southern. It's not fine. What they did was not okay. And now they're repenting, so you honor their repentance by saying, agreeing with them. You're right. That was hard. It was hard to hear, but I forgive you. Didn't that... If you're, done, if you're repenting, doesn't that actually feel better? For somebody to acknowledge what you just said and then forgive you anyway, instead of going, oh, no, it's fine. Then you kind of feel like, well, wait a minute. Did you really forgive me? Like, are you facing this or are you not? Are you, kind of, are you just trying to get me to shut up so we can not have this awkward conversation? Like, it was hard for me to repent to you <laughs> and have this conversation. Let's actually have it, right? So don't lie. Don't say you're not hurt when you are. Don't lie. And don't repent for things when you didn't do anything. And don't repent for things that you, when you're, where you're thinking to yourself, I didn't do anything wrong. But I'm not going to say that because this is awkward. So instead, I'm going to say I forgive you when I don't actually and I'm lying. That's not fair. Because that person finds out six months to a year later when you blow up at them over something that you never actually forgave them. You're like, well, we talked about it, right? Like, this is marriage counseling now. That's, ever get mad at your spouse for something that's like 10 years old? And you realize, oh, mm, I didn't forgive you. I said I did, but really just wanted to stop talking about it. Don't ever lie. Be honest. All right? Okay. I want to pray for us. It is on my heart to see relationships reconciled. That we actually hold the standard. The biblical goal is not just to not fight. The biblical goal is, recon- is unity. Unity in the church, unity in marriage, unity in relationships, and that we learn to do this process. You should be an expert at this. You should be an expert at repenting very quickly and sincerely, and you should be an expert at forgiving very quickly and sincerely and seeing your relationships grow and get through these difficult things. If you've had relationships where it's been broken and then truly reconciled, you can say right now it's stronger than it was. Not because of you, but because of what Jesus does when you are in unity. So I want to pray for that this morning, that we would see the impossible made possible. So why don't we stand up together and I'll pray. And I want to ask the Holy Spirit to bring people to mind for you. So God, we just do ask for that. Uh, if you haven't already done it, God, that you would just bring uh, certain, the right people to mind that maybe that we need to forgive. Just start with that, just that we need to forgive them and release them from that debt. God, you own that debt now. God, you pay it back how, you, how you'd like to. But God, I want more than just that. God, I, want, I don't want just us to be free. I want to see relationships healed and restored. 
just in the short term, it's been a hard year. There's so much division in the world. There's so much division in the churches. There's so many different things to be offended about with each other. God, I pray that you would mature us quickly in this area. And God, that the body of Christ, God, both Living Hope Church and the whole church, God, would be unified and would demonstrate what it looks like to be mad at each other and then be reconciled. God, it's something that the world has a very hard time doing. Instead, their response is just to divide and divide and divide more and more and more and more, hoping that one day they'll get into a, a small enough group of people that think like them that they'll all get along. And what we fi are finding out is that it's just individuals can only get along with themselves. So God, I pray that the church would be different and you would start with us. God, I pray for marriages where there's, there's some work to be done in terms of repentance and forgiveness. God, I pray for, for long-standing friendships that are um, estranged. God, that you would show them that they have some work to do in repentance and forgiveness. God, I pray that you'd bring beautiful reconciliation. God, that we would be experts with this. God, help us to see clearly how we've sinned against others. God, help us to base our forgiveness in your forgiveness of us. God, help us to be generous in our forgiveness. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. See you guys next week. Love you.